Good evening. It's great to see you. How are you doing? Good. I want you to turn to the person next to you and I want you to, in one minute, list. Actually, you can, if you've got a phone, you can get out like a note thing and write this down. I want you to, I'm going to give you a minute. This is going to be a little icebreaker to get you moving and thinking. Okay, I want you to imagine your living room and I want you to make a list in one minute of everything that you can think of that's in that living room. Okay? Simple as. Okay, you can write it down or you can uh, just talk to the person next to you. I'll give you one minute to do it. Okay, a list of everything that's in your living room. Go. Just make a list. Make a list. One minute, starting now. Okay, time's up. Time's up. I'm just going to try and play my, the alarm off my phone, but it's not making any noise. Okay, um, however, time's up. Right, okay, so I'm going to give you one more minute now, and what I want you to do this time is I want you to look at that list, and I want you to think, if there was a fire... Okay, and I had to leave quickly, and I could save three things, just three, from that list, what would they be? Go. And turn to your neighbour and tell them, what are the three things that I would save from this list, or from my living room, if I had to get out quickly in a fire? What would be the things that would be most valuable or most worth saving to me? And the question is, having established that, what does that tell you about your possessions and the things that you value what do you what do you infer from that what does that teach you or show you when you sit back and analyze what does it tell you anybody want to i'm not going to make you share publicly but does anybody want to share publicly what does that tell us about the things that we own and what we how we value them any observations your electric guitar okay some things are very precious to us. Anybody else? TV. Okay. Well, but I'm not asking you what you're taking. My question is, what does that tell us about the possessions that we own? That's the key question here. The things that are most valuable to us. Okay, thank you. It's <laughs> interesting, isn't it? I thought about this. And I thought, TV? No, I could live without the TV. For me, it would be the photos of my family that are on the wall that I'd want to take. They're pretty irreplaceable. Okay, well, um, we're going to start a new series on generosity. Before we do that, just one little thing to say about the um, cathedral service next week that Will mentioned. You do actually, uh, you're supposed to, um, if you want to go, you're supposed to go online and get a free ticket. You're supposed to buy it. I don't know if anybody told you that. It might not have been in the notes. But um, as far as I'm aware, there's about 1,500 spaces and about 1,000 of them are taken already. So if you want to go to that event, which is going to be all of Winchester and beyond, um, churches all over gathering, praying, uh, testimony stories and lots of worship and um, be great to be there and you could chance it but if you know that you want to go I would suggest that you go to that link that was up there it's, it's on our website and um, you can find it from there and then they'll click through and show you where and if you want to get a ticket you can get a ticket they're free but you do have to register for them okay um, so tonight we're doing a talk on generosity we, we last week we started our new series on generosity um, the definition of generosity according to the, my favorite source of all information which is Google or as somebody once referred to it um, Dougal um, <laughs> show this bloke I met once he was he was quite old school and he went um, he, he came into our office and he went um, can you look that thing up on that there Dougal thing and we all went sorry what <laughs> anyway this was a long time ago um, definition of generosity according to Google is showing a readiness to give more of something that's strictly necessary or expected 
Okay? Generosity is going further than it would be expected you to, for you to go. It's larger or more plentiful than usual. That's what generous means. Okay? And what we do with our money, and not just our money, but our time and our energy and all the resources that we've got, all the things that God has given us, what we do with that and how we treat that, that's a key biblical theme. That's a key theme from the Bible. And that's not because God is in desperate need of our money, because he isn't, because it's his anyway. And he's got plenty, he's got all that he needs. And it's not because the church is in need of our money either. That's not the point, that's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because the, the way we handle our money and the way our hearts are around this kind of stuff and possessions, the, the way that it works is that God knows that if he's got that, then he's got kind of pretty much all of us. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, because there's a potential danger of, um, you know, allowing money and resources and possessions to kind of take over our lives um, and be in control of how we're doing things. And that's why God is interested in our money and our possessions and all of that stuff. He's so interested, in fact, that there are over 400 passages in the Bible relating to money and resources. 400 passages, like over 2,000 verses or something like that. It's a very real issue. It's one that we can all relate to. So, for example, there's one of the Proverbs that says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. But a lifestyle of generosity isn't just about money and possessions. It's actually about the sharing of our time and our talents and all the resources that God's given us. It's about investing in others, going over and above what might be expected for the glory of God. And that kind of generosity is the kind of lifestyle which followers of Jesus are called to. But because that kind of lifestyle echoes the generosity that God has already shown to us countless times. You see, he doesn't ask us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. And Paul, last week when he spoke, he focused very simply on the generosity of God, how generous God is to us. Story after story from the Bible, example after example of the way in which God showed and showered his generosity upon his people. Obviously, summing it kind of all gets summed up in Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. We've just been singing about it. We've just been singing, how marvellous, how wonderful is my Saviour's love for me. He died for me. And Paul, last week, pointed, pointed out that we actually won't be able to live and be fully generous with others until we know and fully understand God's generosity to us. Until we can accept that, until we can live with the reality of it. You see, the truth is, my dad is incredibly generous. He's, he's the most generous dad you could ever know. And because he's given so much to me, I am able to give so much to others out of the resource that he's given to me. My father God has given me Everything, way beyond anything I could even imagine or comprehend. That's the reality, that's the truth. And so the question is, do I believe that and do I embrace it? And do I choose to live in the reality of it? Do I let my heart be affected and changed and softened by the reality of God's generosity to me, by the grace that he has shown me, the number of times I have screwed up my life, And yet God has continually given to me unmerited favour, undeserved grace. 
Generosity is not a rule to be obeyed. It's a heart condition to be cultivated. Now when you hear the phrase heart condition, that's usually a negative thing. Okay, if you hear heart condition, you think, oh, that doesn't sound good. Okay, but in this case, a heart condition is something to be sought after, something to be cultivated, something to be encouraged or pursued or embraced. Because when our hearts are in the right, are in the right condition, when our hearts towards God are in the right condition, then our hearts towards others are also soft and generous. And we're going to look at loads, of, there are loads of great examples in the Bible of this, but we're going to look at the story about one guy today who's called Barnabas. He is one of the early leaders of the church, the leaders of the early church. And you can read his story in Acts. And we're going to look at a couple of passages. And the first one is in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Just before we get to that, just a little bit of background and context for this story. Okay, the Acts of the Apostles was written by Luke, and it's a continuation of Luke's Gospel. You can basically read the whole thing. They're split up in the Bible because John comes after that. But, it's, but, but um, Luke wrote the book of Luke, and then he wrote the book of Acts. And kind of one finishes where Jesus died and then ascended into heaven, and then the next bit starts. It's like that's the second half. They, all the theologians call it Luke-Acts because it's all one kind of story. Anyway... <clears throat> Jesus has ascended into heaven. His disciples are left in a closed room. They call it the upper room. They're just sitting there. And all of the whirlwind of the past three years and all of the ministry and the life of Jesus and then the whole thing around the crucifixion and being in Jerusalem for the Passover and Jesus dying and then the whole thing about Jesus being raised again and then being seen and this miracle, this, this whole thing's gone on. It's been an incredible journey. And then he gets to the ascension and Jesus says, right, it's over to you guys and up he goes. And in the church calendar, we've just celebrated that. 10th of May, Ascension Day. And the time that the disciples spent between Ascension Day and Pentecost, which came next, which is what we're celebrating next Sunday night. Um, okay, so the, the, the Thy Kingdom Come thing that Will was mentioning earlier is deliberately cited, placed, located, um, that's not the right word, located, scheduled, okay, in between Ascension Day and Pentecost. That's why the, 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 the archbishops are called the church to pray. But actually, what's going on there in that time originally is that the disciples are sitting there in the upper room and they're waiting to see what happens next. They're wondering about what's just happened. They're waiting to see what happens next. And they get this incredible, powerful encounter with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You know, the wind comes and the fire comes. And um, <clears throat> whatever happens, they are completely changed. They're bold. They're full of faith. They go out into the streets of Jerusalem where Peter preaches the gospel with amazing results. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry. New community of believers, 3,000, over 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus that day. 3,000 people join them on this journey of faith. Okay, and this community is described with certain specific characteristics. You know, if you think back to what we've been talking about in our previous series, the, what's described in Acts 2, which is uh, before this, Acts 2.42, there's, there's a little passage and it's called the community of the believers. And it describes their rule of life. It describes how they did life following Jesus together. Um, it includes teaching and it includes fellowship and it includes prayer and worship. They would worship together every day in the temple courts, in the public place, as was their Jewish custom to do. And they would worship together in each other's homes. And they would eat meals together and they would break bread together and they would share the Passover meal, the communion, what we now call communion. And the other thing is that they had a common purse. They made sure that nobody 
was in need. They shared their resources. You see, following this amazing speech at Pentecost and these 3,000 people getting baptised and they grow. This, this, is, this is what we now know as the church. This is the early, the first incarnation of the church. And they grow together into this joy-filled worshipping community. And they live according to a different set of rules. They share their money and their possessions. They allow generosity and worship to be part of their new pattern of life. And in that context, I'm going to read you this passage from Acts 4. And it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. This first time we hear about Barnabas, actually he wasn't even called Barnabas when we first hear about him, he's called Joseph. And he's a Jewish guy from Cyprus who has somehow found himself in Jerusalem at the same Passover that Jesus was crucified at and then rose again from. He heard, he, I don't know if he was one of those 3,000 people who heard Peter's message on the day of Pentecost and was then baptised. I don't know, it could be, he, he, he could well be. Um, but somewhere along the way he became part of this community of believers, which actually wasn't called, they weren't called Christians, they were called the followers of the way. Okay, these were the, these, This was this radical new community. And for Barnabas, or Joseph... His commitment to them was to do what other people also had, which was to sell some land that he owned, probably land back in Cyprus, to be honest, and give it to the apostles so that he made sure that the money could be used to make sure that everyone's needs were met. This was a common practice for first century followers of the way. Among society at large in Jerusalem at that time, it was a pretty radical lifestyle choice. Let me read you this from a book I, I was reading. Pooling of their property is not an optional extra, but an outward response to the powerful ways in which God's spirit is transforming them, much like the visible rise in honesty and compassion. With persecution looming, the believer's behaviour allows the church to grow strong and supportive. Everyone around this society knew that the followers of the way, the Jesus people, lived a radical lifestyle, a lifestyle that stood out against the culture of the day. They were honest. They were compassionate. They cared for the sick and the poor in the city when nobody else would. And they were generous to each other and around. And all of this stemmed from the spiritual transformation that's going on inside them as they give their whole lives over to Jesus. It wasn't uncommon for new believers to take a new name to be given a new name. That's why Joseph was renamed Barnabas, the son of encouragement. I think that means they thought he was a good guy. When we choose to follow Jesus, it leads to a radical transformation for each of us from the inside out, which, if it's genuine, will impact on every part of our lives. If we're serious about Jesus, then everything changes. 
our values change, our priorities change, and we move they move away from ourselves and on to others. You know, I love in this story that Barnabas was all in. He was all in. He encountered the Holy Spirit, he decided to follow Jesus. He actually meant it. For him, discipleship wasn't just oh a different way of thinking. It wasn't just oh a new set of friends. It wasn't just our religious duty that I've got to perform. It was actually a complete lifestyle change which impacted on every part of him. You'll have heard of a guy called John Wesley who was a famous preacher, church planter, and he founded the Methodist Church. And there's a quote of John Wesley. He said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. That's That's what Wesley said. The last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Surrendering our finances can be the hardest part of following Jesus. Because, as I said earlier, of the influence that money has and the potential grip it has on our whole lives. If you think about Barnabas, back in his culture, any land that he owned would probably have been held in his family for many generations and passed down the family for generations. Okay? It would represent status in society. And it would also represent security for his family. Now, to be fair, we don't know if this field that he sold was the only field he owned. He might have owned 20 fields. I don't know. Okay? So I can't say that you know, he literally sold everything because the Bible doesn't say that. If he had literally sold everything, I think that probably is tantamount to cultural suicide. <laughs> you know, he's basically saying, I don't have any status left. And I don't have any security left. I'm throwing my lot in with the Jesus people. Okay? But I don't know if that's what he said. But certainly what he sold and what he gave was significant. I wonder how big a decision that was for him in order to do this thing. If it was me in this situation, I'm sure that, I'm pretty sure that I would be thinking something along the lines of, what if this thing goes pear-shaped? What if I give my money in and then the whole thing falls apart and I never get it back what if things don't work out what if I need to feed my family what if I get sick what about my retirement plan how am I going to live in the manner to which I've grown accustomed see in the eyes of the world there were no guarantees of security there was just simply the radical alternative lifestyle that Jesus offered I think it's really funny when I think of the phrase alternative lifestyle I imagine some crusty hippie type who's living off the grid somewhere do you know what I mean that's what I think of when I think of like alternative lifestyle man you know eating I don't know beans all day (laughs) that's just what I think of actually anyone who lives for Jesus in this culture and tries to live a, a life of worship and love and generosity it's living an alternative lifestyle you don't have to sort of dye your hair or put braids in it or eat vegetables or something when we choose to I mean you can do if you like I'm not stopping you but when we choose to give a significant part of our income and our resources to God we are living the most alternative lifestyle to most of our culture you see we live in this consumer society where the focus is all about me my choices, my lifestyle, my needs, my preferences, looking after myself, looking after my family, security for me and my family. The Christian community is characterised by a love for others and a generosity that's incredibly radical. I mean, this church is founded on radical generosity. 
I got that wrong. This church is founded on the love and the power of Jesus. But it's also founded on <laughs> radical generosity. You know, many of you, this is reality for you. You embody this in your lives in so many ways. You give your time and your energy for the benefit of others. You come here early to make church happen. You serve people in your life group and communities. You give your resources, the emotional resources that you've got and the financial resources to help make this community function. And we use the resources that we're given to help people connect with Jesus. As a church, that's our mission, to encounter his presence, to grow spiritually and emotionally, to be characterised by practical love and encouragement and make an impact on our city, to share the love and the hope of Jesus. And it all starts with people like Barnabas who from the outset are all in. Yeah? People who are all in. We've sung it tonight. All my love is yours. That's what we sang tonight. All my love is yours. All my love is yours, God, oh, apart from that bit that I need over here. Sold out for Jesus. The radical message of the Bible. That's the challenge. The radical response to the radical love that God has showed us radically. I just decided to see how many times I get the radical word radical into that sentence that is the heart of God I mean he was most certainly all in and if he was all in giving everything making the ultimate sacrifice then I can be too and when we his people go all in with radical lifestyles of generosity we're showing the world just what kind of a God he really is what real love actually means you know I mean blimey the world gets such a bad deal about what Christianity means most of what comes out in the press is negative and rubbish. Actually, this is it. Love and generosity. It's 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 countercultural. We're showing this world what, what God really means. So next time you show up early to help volunteer on the coffee rotor or to go in the car park or on the welcome team, you know, or work with the kids or do the PA or whatever, just remember he was all in, I'm all in that's my response to his love next time you decide you get home from work and it's been a stressful day and all you really need is to sit down with TV uh, and, and just chill out for the evening and then you think oh I've got to go to life group tonight or oh, I've got to go and help at such and such or I've got to go and do something with somebody do I really want to do that now? just remember he was all in, I'm all in next time you put money in the offering at the church or you go online and change your standing order or you give money above and beyond what would be expected of you or you just don't spend it on yourself I was doing this preparing this talk last night and um, about a year ago somebody gave me a hundred quid Amazon gift voucher and for about a year I've been going what am I going to spend this on something for me because <laughs> it was a gift you know and I'm like mm, I don't know so I went online I was going to buy these headphones and I thought I better not do that I'll just wait and then I thought, I've got this new keyboard, and I went to fall in. And I just felt like God said, don't spend it on yourself. Just wait and see what I want to do with it. So I brought it as a visual aid to remind me. So if anybody really needs a £100 Amazon gift voucher, come and see me. Um, and tell me why you really need it. <laughs> but, you know, I just, that's what happens with generous people when we let God be in control. We don't need to take it all for ourselves. We don't need to hold on to it. We don't need to do that thing. I have found in my experience, by the way, 
that when I have given money above and beyond to people, to God, out of a response because I feel like God's said this is what I should do, I've never ever gone without, never been hungry. Never, you can see I've never been hungry, but never gone out, gone without. My, I'm not very good at this. I'm trying very hard. My wife's better at it. We'll get a bunch of money and I'll go, great, we need to pay off that. We need to pay for this. We need, and she's like, yeah, but we need to give some of it away. And I'm like, really? Oh, okay, yes. Okay, fine. You know, we just need to. She's really good at that. Anyway, Barnabas um, features again later in Acts in quite a few key places. Turns out he's one of the key leaders of the early church, very much part of Paul's missionary team, missionary journey. Okay, very much part of seeing churches get established all around the, the region. Um, he's a bit, he's quite understated. He didn't feature in heavily in any books in the New Testament. Uh, didn't write a book like Paul or Peter or James or John. But he was a really incredible guy, the son of encouragement. And there's one other story that I want to read to you from Acts 11, which kind of just shows that, you know, for Barnabas, being all in wasn't just a case of giving his money at the start of the journey and sacrificing some of his own sort of um, status and, and security. Actually, it went further than that. And so this is the other story from Acts 11. Uh, 19 to 25 the first couple of verses say now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia Cyprus and Antioch spreading the word only among the Jews some of them however men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus the Lord's hand was with them and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord so we already saw this church get planted in Jerusalem. And then what happens is, for various reasons, a lot of these people scatter. And they scatter away from Jerusalem again and they set up in various different places. And this is a story about how one church in a place called Antioch got started. Okay, you see, the early church, or the followers of the way, had begun to scatter because they are facing persecution for the choices they're making. People don't like it that they're living this generous life and this radical life. And so there's a one story about a guy called Stephen, and, they, and he, he preaches out in the streets and they, uh, to, to, the, to the Jewish leaders or whoever it is in the town, and, um, and they just don't like it. And they tell him to stop, and he doesn't stop because he feels like this is what Jesus has told him to do. And so they, they throw stones at him until he dies. That's what happens. Okay? And as a result of that, these new believers get a little bit freaked by that, and they go, okay, we better not stay here, we better split up. And they, and they run back to their sort of hometowns. And that, so whilst this might have been seen as a negative thing, in fact, there were some really amazing results happened from this sort of scattering process. And in this place called Antioch, a brand new church was beginning to form, but it wasn't formed with Jewish believers. Okay, So, so far in this story, the people who met Jesus and became part of the new church were all from a Jewish background. Culturally, they were Jewish, okay, and then they'd chosen to follow Jesus. I've met some people like this today. I met this guy, he called himself a, uh, what did he call himself? Uh, a Jewish, oh, I can't remember now. A believer, basically a disciple of Yeshua. That's what he called himself. So he was Jewish, culturally, a, a J.B.Y., a Jewish believer in Yeshua, something like that, okay? And, um, and that's what these people were. But actually, there's a whole story going on here, and this is from Acts 11, but in Acts 10, there's a story um, about Peter 
um, in the house of a guy called Cornelius. And what happens is Peter is travelling on, he has this dream, and you can read all this in Acts 10, um, and he, he, he sits down, he goes up to the roof of this guy's house, Cornelius, Cornelius, uh, uh, sorry, he goes up to the roof, he has this dream, God speaks to him, he says, I want you to go to the house of a Gentile, that's it, not a Jew, somebody who doesn't eat the clean food that we eat, somebody who's different culturally from you, because the gospel is for them too. And Peter goes, what? The gospel is for the non-Jews as well as the Jews, that's quite a radical thought at that time. I mean, frankly, none of us would be here if this hadn't have happened. Okay? But this is, this is what went on. And so um, he then goes to Cornelius' house and he preaches the gospel and they all respond and they all choose to follow Jesus. Okay? And that messes with his head a bit because culturally they're from a different place. And anyway, Paul, Peter, sorry, decides that this is, this is the Lord. Um, this, this good news of salvation is not just for the Jews but it is actually for everyone and so he goes back to the disciples and he says look, listen guys something quite radical has happened I don't think this gospel is just for the Jewish nation it's actually for everyone and the disciples have to have a big meeting about that because that's quite a big thing and they have this council meeting um, and they affirm it and they say yes the gospel is not just for our race and culture but it's for everyone and so albeit guardedly they're like okay so we can have people who are not Jewish in background in the church too. People with a different cultural heritage following Jesus just like us. Okay. Um, and they won't even have to go through some of those things that Jewish people have to do, like getting circumcised and eating certain food. They don't have to do that because that's not what the gospel is. This was a big decision for them at the time. Don't you think that that in itself is an extraordinary systematic act of generosity I mean there's God saying you know I chose you I'm sorry I don't know why I'm coming to you guys and not you guys it's just it's nothing about you particularly I chose you my people the Jewish people I've tried for many many years to kind of commune with you and relate with you and be with you and, and, and you know and actually now that Jesus has come it's not just for you it's for everyone I mean isn't that an incredible act of generosity in itself that's our God he's a generous God anyway back to the story the apostles hear about what's going on in Antioch some of the people went to Antioch and they found some people there who were Greek speaking okay so they're different to us and they spoke they shared the gospel with them and guess what happened these people responded to the gospel and they started to gather as a community another community and so jumping on with the story news of this reached the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. We need a leader on the ground to figure out whether this is real and whether what's happening is the same as what's happening over here and how we're going to navigate and negotiate these whole cultural differences. Who should we send? We'll send Barney. And they sent Barney to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done and he was glad and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And he was a good man full of faith in the Holy Spirit and a great number of people were brought to the Lord so why did they choose Barney? well he was mature and he was godly and he was clearly gifted as a pastor and leader and he was prepared to go I mean he was ready to relocate the generosity that characterises Barnabas in the early days when he sells his field and gives the money in also is evident in his life in that he's prepared to make a journey to up sticks and go somewhere else because God is requiring him to be there. 
He was ready to relocate to Antioch. He was ready to spend time there teaching and encouraging the believers and seeing more people come to faith. He had spotted that God was up to something and he was ready to give his time and his energy and his talents to see God's kingdom come there. What about us? What about us? How does generosity look for us in this context? What is God doing in our communities? Where is there evidence that God is at work? Who is asking questions or looking for answers or in need of investment? I mean, all of us have people that we're bumping into in our spheres of influence. Where is God asking us to invest our time and our talents? Where is there a need and it just needs someone to get involved and do something about it? I mean, I bet you can think of 20. Are we prepared to be the ones to go? Where are there around us, where are there people who have vision and momentum, who have great ideas and creativity and the ability to see things change for the better and they just need resources? Maybe they need money, but maybe they just need people. Maybe there are some people near you who are starting a life group. Or maybe there are some people in you, near you who are trying to start a church or a small group. They're, they're reaching out to their friends. They're intentionally living in a way. I mean, I know a bunch of people in Southampton are doing this. And other places as well. They're intentionally living in such a way as to, to try and reach out to a community and make a difference and impact in a community. I'd love to see that happen all over this place whether it's in our communities or in our workplaces or our families or in our church maybe it's in different countries and different cultures see the thing about Barney is it seems to me he was prepared to he was, he was not just all in at the beginning when he was young and passionate and full of zeal okay but he was all in throughout his life and for some of us that's a challenge what about those of us who've been around a bit We've got responsibilities now. Are we still all in in the way that we used to be? What does a culture of generosity look like for us? How do we respond to God's generosity in our lives and invest in what he wants to do? What does it mean to stay all in? And the last bit of this story is that then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. That's why they became known as mini-Christs or little Christs. These are little Jesuses. That's what, that's what they were calling them. You know? Ah, oh, the, the Jesuses. The mini-Jesuses. You see, Saul had had this radical conversion. Everyone knows about that. On the road to Damascus where he met with Jesus and he was blinded. So I don't mean that everyone knows about that. Quite a lot of people know about that. If you don't know about that, I'd love to tell you about it afterwards. It's just another part of the story. Um, it's an amazing story, the book of Acts. Anyway, Saul's had this radical conversion. He was somebody who was on fire and passionate. I don't imagine he was a quiet and calm man. I imagine him being radical. If he was preaching, he'd be going for it. Okay. And when before he was a believer, he was radical and passionate about persecuting and killing Christians okay so when you read the story of the stoning of Stephen there's a little verse that says and 
Saul was there holding the coats of the guys who threw the stones. He was there watching on and approving of the stoning of Stephen. And then later Saul himself has this amazing encounter with Jesus and his character and zeal, I don't think they ever change, they just switched allegiances. And so he goes through this conversion experience, he goes to Jerusalem to try and join the disciples and the disciples go, whoa! Who are you? You're the guy who kills Christians. We don't believe you. What do you mean you've been saved? You're just here as a spy. You're going to come and kill all the rest of us, right? They didn't believe that he was really saved. They assumed he was a covert spy. I heard this guy talking the other week. Um, and he was, from Kurdistan. he was working in Kurdistan, leading a church there. And in Kurdistan, there are some people, this is northern Iraq, um, he was actually talking about persecution and what happened when ISIS came to town. Um, but he was just describing the situation, how it's so hard for the Christians there. People have been Christians culturally all their lives, okay, because they're just forever persecuted. Um, but he was describing this other phenomenon. He said, I think some of them are trying to move out. But um, he said, what's really exciting is the number of, and then he referred to somebody, what he recalled MBBs, which stands for Muslim Background Believers. These are people who've come from a Muslim background but chosen to follow Jesus. The thing is, if they come from a Muslim background and they're Muslims culturally, but they've chosen to follow Jesus, then when they come to church, all the Christians look at them and say, no, 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 not on here. We don't believe who you are. We don't know who you are. You could be spies from the government. And so the Muslim background believers have to have their own congregations. So they have MBB congregations and they have the Christian congregations. And they're both following Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's a little bit like what's going on here. In this story. Anyway, um, it's not up there, but let me just read you a bit from Acts 9. It says, When Saul came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and they didn't really believe that he was a disciple. But who was the one who spoke up for him? Oh, it was Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. And he told them, how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas is the one who took Saul to the disciples and said, this guy's really changed. Okay? I've seen it with my own eyes. And so Saul, and this is, the, this is still Acts 9, so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So he started preaching. And he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. And when the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So here's Saul, and I can imagine that he, when he went out preaching for Jesus, and remember he's quite a new, a new preacher, he's not really done this before, I imagine he got quite fired up, and I imagine he told people they needed to change, and I imagine that that probably upset a few people. And, so the, and, and that's why they threatened to kill him, and so the, the believers are like... Mm. You're not really helping at the minute. Why don't you just kind of go back where you're from, Tarsus, and just go and chill out there for a bit. And, um, and that's what happened. And Paul was off to Tarsus. Or Saul, they didn't call it, he hadn't been named Paul even yet. And they kind of pushed him out of the way. Barnabas is down there, he's, moved, he's gone down from Jerusalem, he's gone to Antioch, he's with this new church, he's looking at all that's going on, he's looking around, he's going, going to need some help here, going to need somebody else to help here. Who, who could help? I know who could help. Saul could help. Oh, do I want to get Saul down here? 
he's quite you know passionate and a bit outspoken and a bit in your face you know might, might upset a few people be taking a risk but I think there's something on him I think there's something on this guy I think God's working in his life yeah so he goes to Tarsus finds Saul brings him back to Antioch and spends a whole year working alongside him to lead the church Barnabas's generosity extended to pouring his life into a young passionate and mostly untested preacher he spent a year working with Saul and saw this church grow radically he saw people come to Jesus and grow in discipleship I don't imagine that working alongside Paul was a piece of cake I don't imagine that that was all smooth and easy I imagine he probably had to invest quite a bit of time and energy in this guy I'm, 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 I'm surmising this but you know I imagine that probably he had to cover his back a few times and help him grow but boy what a result I mean just think if Barnabas hadn't gone and grabbed Paul and taken him up there and got him involved and got him into the nitty gritty of leadership and leading the church and what that's all about and preaching the gospel I can't even think if he hadn't have done that where we'd be because he didn't stop there because the church grew and grew and grew as you know and you can read in Acts 13 you get to the point where Antioch the church in Antioch has grown there's a whole bunch of leaders there and they turn around to Paul and Silas uh, sorry Paul and Barnabas and they say I think you need, we think you need to go we need to, you need to go and preach the gospel in other places now and they set off on these missionary journeys and everywhere they go they preach the gospel they see churches get established and they continue the work of God you see Barney Barnabas was quite prepared to be the guy that invested in the guy who was going to do it he was quite prepared for Paul to get up on stage and probably, you know, see hundreds and thousands of people get saved where he would only see tens and hundreds. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? He was quite prepared to be the guy who took, ultimately took a back seat because he'd invested in the new guy that was coming through. Paul ended up being a key leader in the New Testament. Paul ended up writing most of what we now know as the New Testament. But being all in for Barney meant getting on with the job that God's asked him to do, pouring his life into others and not looking for position or glory or status. See, Barney trusted Jesus for all of that. And that for me is a lifestyle of generosity. Right there, pouring into others, investing in others and not looking for anything in return. Now, in about three or four weeks' time, uh, we've got a guy coming here called Brian Dirksen. Okay, we're going to have a night of worship. It's um, instead of our evening service on the third of June, I think. Now, if you don't know who Brian Dirksen is, um, he's a worship leader and a songwriter, and you will know songs that he's written because they've gone all around the world. And about 20 years ago, I had the utter, utter privilege of working with Brian. He was over here in the UK. Um, for about three years and he was training and leading and developing a team of worship leaders and songwriters within, from within the vineyard movement in the UK of which I was a part and a bunch of other people were a part now Brian is a little bit Canadian actually he's a lot Canadian okay? and that's all fine but when it comes to Canadian music tastes it's basically Brian Adams and Celine Dion okay? so it was then anyway and for me that's lovely but it's just all a bit middle of the road okay? and, um, and so I, mean, I would rib him about this and I would say oh, you play your music too slow you know, in England we play our guitars louder and the music faster um, and he, would, he was quite happy to be, to be ribbed about that um, 
the thing is Brian never tried to be anybody else because he knew that God called him to be a worship leader he knew God called him to lead people um, and so he got on the stage with a whole bunch of people people who were if I'm honest frighteningly gifted people who have now in that last 20 years gone on to write incredible songs that have gone all around the world and people who are in the world of worship have, have become really established and very visible they weren't at the time but they are now and the thing about Brian that I remember, and this is my, if you've been to any of my leadership courses, I tell this story, because it had a, such a profound impact on me. Because he was very, very comfortable being himself and allowing other people and their giftings just to rise up. And so he would lead a couple of songs, and then somebody else would lead a song, and he would back off. And he would cover their backs, and if they made a mistake, or because these people weren't experienced at the time, he was just quite happy to cover it and let people grow, and let people have their time, and grow in confidence. And for me, it's the, for me it was an object lesson in leadership, and it's how I do leadership, or how I try to anyway. You know? Um, because it was so incredible, the way that he was just happy to let others come to the surface. Now, you can come and see him. Again, the tickets are free. You can just go online on our website and you can come see him. I'd love it if you'd come. It's going to be a great night. He's just going to come. We're going to worship. He's going to share a bit. We'll worship some more. That's it. be lovely. Do you know the song Faithful One? Yeah? It's the song that Joe, my wife, wants to have at her funeral. I don't know why she wants to have it at a funeral because she won't be there but anyway she's like a friend of ours Nick who was a worship leader back, back in Birmingham she said to him one day look she said to me whatever happens if Nick's still alive I want him to lead Faith One at my funeral okay and Brian wrote that song Faithful One and amongst many other songs that he wrote Come Now Is The Time To Worship and Refine Us Fire anyway I digress a lifestyle of generosity is characterised by going the extra